Welcome to Christendom College in today's Principals Live Lecture. My name is Adam Wilson, and I serve as the Principals Production Manager here at the college. We're so happy to have all of you here with us today. First, a special word of gratitude to our Principals Society, our President's Council, and to our other donors who make our work here at the college possible. Through their support, we are supporting faithful Catholic education in the truth, free of all federal funding. We are also spreading the truth throughout the world through our Principals Project. Thank you to them for their support. I would like to welcome today Dr. Owen Viner, the chairman of the, of the theology department here at Christendom College. Dr. Owen Viner received his BA from the University of Western Australia and a licentiate of sacred theology from the Liturgical Institute of Mundelein in, in Illinois. He received his M theology and PhD from the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and the Family in Melbourne. Dr. Viner is the chair of the theology department at Christendom College we hope you enjoyed today's Principal's Live Lecture. Thank you, Adam. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the, name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me for this Principles Live Lecture on the Holy Family. The content of this lecture is derived from two sessions of the Domestic Church Theology Elective that we offer at Christendom College. In this course, we cover 15 weeks on the theology of the Domestic Church, and we conclude with ethical issues that confront the family as a community of life and love. In today's lecture, I'm going to be looking, first of all, at the Holy Family in Scripture. Secondly, I'm going to consider devotion to St. Joseph and the Holy Family. And then finally, I'm going to present the foundations for a spousal and familial spirituality. Okay, so to look at the Holy Family in Scripture, the first thing we note is that the New Testament begins with a family. So too did the Old Testament. The Old Testament began with the creation of with creation with the marriage of Adam and Eve, and then later with the new creation after the flood, we see that this new creation is reconstituted through a family, that of Noah, his sons, and their wives. Salvation history starts with the call of Abraham and his family. We could also add the family of Israel on Sinai and the Davidic royal family and the temple. Now, as much as we can say that there are individual protagonists in all of these events, we see ultimately that they are grounded in familial and covenantal relationships. And that is the purpose of the genealogies that recur throughout the Old Testament. They remind us of this fact. They remind us that the family is the bearer and the object of salvation history. Thus, when we come to the New Testament, the spouses of this family, Mary and Joseph, they are presented within the context of their respective genealogies. In a real sense, these two genealogies, as the final genealogies in sacred scripture, represent the fulfillment of the mission 
of the Old Testament family. So what was this mission of the Old Testament family? In effect, it had a two-fold mission. First of all, it was to act as the bearer of the original blessing of fruitfulness. God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. He gave the same command to Noah. Abraham himself was to be the source of universal blessing to families. And so this is the first mission of the Old Testament family, to act as the bearer of the original blessing of fruitfulness. Secondly, the mission of the family was to continue to hand on the covenant between God and Israel. So this twofold mission of the family, the continuation of blessing, but also covenant, converges upon and is fulfilled by the holy family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. They are the ones who will continue the blessing of fruitfulness. But ultimately, this fruitfulness will be the blessing of divine life itself. Also, the new and eternal covenant sealed in the blood of Christ, who through St. Joseph will belong to the line of David. So the Holy Family continues on the covenant. I also want to consider the Holy Family in Scripture in relation to these genealogies. There are two genealogies that begin the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. The genealogy that is found in Luke's Gospel traces our Lord's lineage back to Adam. And this signifies that Jesus is the Savior of all humanity, but that also he shares a bond with the entire human family through the Incarnation. This genealogy places us within the context of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, whose marriage was blessed by God. Matthew's genealogy, on the other hand, takes us back to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is marked by blessing and faith. Through Abraham, all the families of the world will be blessed. And thus, Christ is presented as belonging to this covenantal family. It is through him, ultimately, that all the families of the world will be blessed by incorporation into his body and then in the gift and unity of the Holy Spirit. Matthew ends his genealogy with the persons Joseph, husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And thus, the genealogies locate the Holy Family within the entire human family and salvation history. The third point I want to consider in this discussion of the Holy Family in Scripture is whether Joseph and Mary had a real marriage. My students often ask me, was it a real marriage because it wasn't consummated? I regularly tease them that they know enough canon law to be dangerous. In response to this question, the Latin Church has always followed the Roman tradition of civil consent. Roman law tended to focus on the legal and contractual aspects of marriage. The couple gave their consent and signed a contract. For the East, on the other hand, it was the blessing of the bishop or the priest that married the couple. Now, as the church begins to spread throughout Northern Europe after the conversion of Constantine, the question becomes again, 
what makes a marriage. And so the early church fathers actually turned to the marriage of Joseph and Mary to see what it was that is the essence of marriage. And so in the end, the Latin tradition develops an understanding in favor of consent. Consent makes the marriage. And this we arrived at not just through the Roman legal tradition, but ultimately because of Mary and Joseph. And so, for example, the church concludes that it was consent. St. Ambrose devised the basic principle that it was the nuptial contract that makes marriage. And St. Augustine, following Ambrose, argues that it's consent rather than consummation that constitutes marriage. So in the end, the church's theology of marriage will be shaped by the marriage of Joseph and Mary. Uh, my next point is to consider that Mary and Joseph both receive a kind of enunciation in the scriptures. I'd spoken about how Mary and Joseph's marriage represented the fulfillment of the Old Testament marriages and families, and they do so in a particular way. Both Adam and Abraham are personally addressed by God. God speaks to Adam. He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Earlier in chapter 1 in the book of Genesis, God speaks directly to the couple and blesses them with fruitfulness. And Adam and Eve cannot be passive in receiving this address and blessing, but they must respond with faith, with fidelity, and with their yes. And thus, through their fidelity, God calls them to embark on their vocation to marriage and fruitfulness. So to Abraham, he is also personally addressed by God. God calls him to leave his homeland and later even to sacrifice his son. Abraham responds with faith and embarks on his vocation to be the father of a multitude. Again, this is a vocation of fruitfulness. So note the progression. God addresses the spouses with a mission. They respond with faith, or they give their assent. And then they have a vocation to unity and fruitfulness. Now we see the same structure unfolding with Mary and Joseph. Both Mary and Joseph are addressed by God through an angel. They are given a mission to which they must assent with faith. For Mary, she must consent to become the mother of the Redeemer, the Son of God. For St. Joseph, he must consent to take Mary to be his wife. And so this mission of these spouses, and in fact all spouses, is this dialogue with God in which they assent to his will and ultimately then to make the statement of faith. And so Joseph and Mary marry, and they become united in the Holy Spirit and fruitful in a way that far exceeds every expectation and hope. The Father bestows upon them the gift of his Son. And so even in Joseph and Mary, we see this faith, unity, and fruitfulness. In this section on scripture, I wish to discuss one last incident that witnesses to the fidelity of the Holy Family and thus become for us a model for our fidelity. And this is the story of the finding of Jesus in the temple. 
What were the requirements for attending Passover each year? There were three. You were obliged to go annually if you were male, if you are over 13 years of age, and if you lived within 18 miles of Jerusalem. None of these requirements apply to the Holy Family. They lived 60 miles from Jerusalem and not 18 miles. Thus, Joseph did not need to go. Also, we saw that males over 13 are required to go. Jesus, at this point, was only 12. He did not need to go. And then lastly, only males were obliged. But Mary went nevertheless. And yet it states in Luke's gospel that they did this every year. And thus we see the superabundant fidelity of the Holy Family to the law, a fidelity that takes place under the spousal fatherly care of St. Joseph. So to summarize the Holy Family in Scripture, we see that there is this fidelity to a call, there is unity, and there is fruitfulness. We now come to the second part of my talk on devotion to St. Joseph and the Holy Family. Many Christian families practice devotion to the Holy Family, but few would know, myself included, that the title Holy Family was first only used in the 1400s, and devotion to St. Joseph came much later. So for the majority of the history of the church, Christians have not even spoken of the Holy Family nor turned to St. Joseph, head of the Holy Family, for their needs. The first to use the term Holy Family was, in fact, St. Bernardin of Siena, who died in 1444. However, it is only in the 1600s and the 1700s that the term takes hold. Why? Why is this the case? It's because there was no understanding then of what we call the nuclear family. For them, the family referred to the extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. So rather, before they were known as the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, as a unit, were referred to as the earthly trinity. What I will start with is a brief description of the history of devotion to St. Joseph, and then later the Holy Family. And in this, I'm relying on an article uh, from the Catholic World Report by Sandra Miesel. This is how Miesel begins her article. She says, Imagine a world where no Christian is named for St. Joseph, where no religious entity bears his name. Picture St. Joseph absent from the Missal, the breviary, the church calendar, and the litany of the saints. No shrines, no devotions, no hymns, no solo images, no popular customs, no festive foods honor St. Joseph. This world without St. Joseph was Christendom into the 14th century. End quote. So what do we know of St. Joseph from Scripture? We know three things. First of all, no gospel records a single word of St. Joseph. Secondly, he's called a just man and a son of David. And then thirdly, he's mentioned by name 15 times in the gospel. That said, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned seven times. Now, after Jesus' youth, St. Joseph simply disappears. Most presume that he was dead by that time. He has no traditional burial site, 
and leaves no bodily relics. In the early church, he's hardly mentioned at all. Part of this is to protect virginity and the role of Mary. Now, apocryphal texts try to fill in the gaps. And all of this is speculation by them. Now, according to these texts, St. Joseph was a 90-year-old widower, I'm sorry, a 99-year-old widower with six grown children. And these are the brothers of Jesus of which we hear. And he dies at 111 with Jesus and Mary at his side. So St. Joseph was always pictured in the early church as an elderly man. He was more like a grandfather figure who cared for Mary and his son. Now, by the year 1000, he begins to get his own feast day. And then in the 1400s, we, we now have an era of famine and war. And now, because of the terrible suffering that begins to afflict families, devotion to St. Joseph begins to spread. Now, at this time, the theologian Jean Gerson and St. Bernardin, who I mentioned, rewrite St. Joseph's role in salvation history from the sources available to them. In summary, and none of this is actually official church teaching, but nevertheless, it doesn't contradict it. Joseph was a young man. Now, why is this important? He needed to be strong enough to care for Jesus and Mary and also to travel to all the way to Egypt and back. He was a virgin and not a widower. He was cleansed from original sin before his birth. And they also said that Joseph was assumed into heaven after his death. Now, again, none of this is church teaching, but it doesn't contradict it. Now, why did they believe in Joseph's assumption? It was because of this. The church fathers saw that the Old Testament Joshua took the bones of the Old Testament Joseph into the promised land when he entered into it. And they saw this as the prefigurement of the New Testament Joshua, who's Jesus, taking the bones of the New Testament Joseph into the heavenly promised land. And in this way, our Lord honored his earthly father in the way that only a divine son could. And also, the Holy Family is reunited, body and soul, in heaven. Gerson says, O venerable Trinity, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, which divinity has joined the concord of love. End quote. The popes of the last 200 years have all promoted devotion to St. Joseph for the church and for the domestic church. I really want to mention the history of devotion to the Holy Family. So the church has always had devotion to Mary, but as we saw, devotion to St. Joseph only in around about the 1400s. But a shift takes place in spirituality in the 1400s. The faithful do not focus on Jesus, Mary, and Joseph as individuals, but rather on their communion of life and love. Now, the impetus for this shift is the challenges that the families faced, diseases, famines, and war. And there had been profound renewal in this devotion in the last two centuries, especially with industrialization, war, and economic depression. In our own time, the threats to the family are targeting its very fundamental core, that core that I mentioned, of fidelity, unity, and fruitfulness. Gender ideology, 
and other forces fragment and isolate families and individuals, one commentator spoke of our culture as a post-familial society. More than ever, we need to turn to the Holy Family, both as model and more importantly, as intercessor. We now come to the final part of my lecture in which I discuss Mary and Joseph as models for spouses and as parents. And in effect, this will be a theology of motherhood and fatherhood based upon that fidelity, unity, and fruitfulness that are spoken throughout. So let us start with Mary. Regarding Mary's fidelity, we see her faith, her trust, her surrender in following Christ. St. Elizabeth says at the visitation, blessed is she who believed. Mary's life is one of total surrender and trust in God. There are critical moments where she does not understand, and yet she still says yes. However, this is not a blind obedience. Instead, she treasures these things in her heart, reflecting on them deeply. Now, please, I do not wish to sound critical, but I think that this surrender and trust is something that mothers can struggle with. Fathers do too, believe me, in very particular ways. But I think that mothers have a tendency to sometimes to want to micromanage the lives of their kids. Now, again, I'm not saying this to be down on mothers. Neither am I projecting my own mother, uh, for whom it's 12.51 in the morning in Australia, so hopefully she's not watching this. But what I am saying is that mothers are given a very special love for their children. It is a very personalistic love that really focuses on each child's gifts and uniqueness. But sometimes this love can make excuses for the moral failings of the child. Oh, he really is a good and good boy, but despite, and then fill in the blanks for all the excuses. Or sometimes a mother can seek to control the child or smother. And yet so much of Mary's life was a letting go of her son. It was a pilgrimage of faith that involved following him all the way to the cross. Secondly, regarding unity, we see this expressed in Mary's yes in her fiat. And in this way, she becomes the model of consent. The fiat of Mary is a radical openness, a radical yes to the very will of God and is ultimately for spouses an openness to one's spouse. Now this openness that we have to our spouses will be lived in complementary ways. Regarding Mary, she says yes to God's own radical self-gift through the gift of the Holy Spirit. God initiates in Mary responds. And thus, if we are to speak of the characteristic of a wife's yes to a husband, it is marked by a receptive yes. Receptive doesn't mean passive, however, because Mary was always fully engaged in her yes. Finally, regarding fruitfulness, Mary shows us a type of universal motherhood. At the cross, Mary is made the mother of the church. There is a universality and inclusiveness that shapes her motherhood, a willingness to embrace all. St. John Paul II taught, Motherhood involves a special communion with the mystery of life as it develops in the woman's womb. The mother is filled with wonder 
at this mystery of life and understands with unique intuition what is happening inside her. In the light of the beginning, the mother accepts and loves as a person the child that she is carrying in her womb. This unique contact with the new human being developing within her gives rise to an attitude towards human beings, not only towards her own child, but every human being, which profoundly marks the woman's personality." End quote. So, in her experience of motherhood, the woman develops a maternal tenderness to all. We now turn to St. Joseph. So regarding faith, we see that St. Joseph's faith was lived as his spousal and fatherly self-gift that he makes to Jesus and Mary. John Paul II will speak of St. Joseph's complete self-sacrifice, his generous love for the mother of God, and that he gave her a husband's gift of self, which is an exclusive surrender of heart and body. Later, John Paul II will state, in Joseph's fatherhood is expressed concretely in his having made his life a service, a sacrifice to the mystery of the incarnation and to the redemptive mission connected with it. In having used the legal authority, which was his over the Holy Family, in order to make a gift of self. So this service of faith that St. Joseph gives is an obedience in action. Uh, secondly, regarding unity, this is shown in Joseph's fatherhood and in what I call election, which I'll explain shortly. So Joseph's fatherhood was certainly not biological, but it was a real fatherhood. John Paul II will say, Joseph is the man with whom God the Father, in a certain way, shared his own fatherhood. How was Christ's divine sonship revealed in his public ministry? It was revealed at his baptism. The voice from heaven declares, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And so this is what I mean by the love of election. This love that says, you are mine, and I am yours. And Joseph participates in this election in a unique way. He is chosen for the son, and the son is chosen for him. So for a child, this election by his or her father is everything. Almost everything that a child does relative to the father, even in adulthood, seems to correspond to this father, to this desire. Are you pleased with me? Sadly, fathers do, uh, can be distant or possessing or controlling. But the essence of fatherhood is affirmation. You are my beloved, and with you, I am well pleased. Finally, regarding fruitfulness, we see that there is an incorporation that takes place. Uh, we see in Matthew's gospel that Christ's messianic identity is traced through Joseph as the son of David. The son of God is incorporated into a people, a heritage, a bloodline. This grounds his identity as a descendant of David. Fatherhood becomes the foundation of the identity of the child. This is perfected in baptism. The true identity of the child is revealed in the Holy Spirit through his relation to divine paternity, in his relation to the Father, in the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. And so this is the mission of the Father, of human fathers. We are to introduce 
the spiritual lineage of, this ch of the child more and more, grounding his identity both corporeally, historically, and spiritually. So let me conclude. From Scripture, we saw the love and mission of Christian spouses and parents that it takes the following shape, that God addresses each couple with a mission, and they respond with faith, they give their consent to God and each other, and then we have unity and fruitfulness. The essence of marital and spiritual and familial spirituality is thus a spirituality of fidelity. It is a yes to God, to each other, and to their children. It is a robust living of faith all the way to the cross. Secondly, it is a spirituality of unity. The spouses receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as their bond of unity. Now, many aspects of modern life work against this spousal and familiar unity, but through grace, we can work at preserving this unity of the Spirit. And lastly, there is this spirituality of fruitfulness. Even before children, spouses are made fruitful in the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, this spirituality of fidelity, unity, and fruitfulness was the essence of the spirituality of the Holy Family. It is the path of the universal church. She too is called to be faithful, one, and fruitful. And at the same time, each domestic church is to discern how it lives this fidelity, unity, and fruitfulness. I wish to finish one last point. On the night before he cried, the night before he died, Christ prayed for the unity of the church so that the world might believe. This prayer, by extension, is also directed to the unity of the domestic church. It is the unity, but also the fidelity and fruitfulness of the domestic church built upon the love of husband and wife that will give credible witness to the truth of the Son's incarnation, death, and resurrection. When the Christian family lives this unity, a unity that is exemplified by the Holy Family, the world too may believe that the Father has sent the Son. Because the world will see the mission of the Son incarnated, made flesh in the actions of the domestic church, a communion of life and love. May the Holy Family intercede for all Christian families that we live an incarnate spirituality of faith, unity, and fruitfulness. Amen. So I believe that there is time for some questions and that some questions are also flooding in online right now. Uh, some people have already sent some questions, and so I wanted to address those questions first. Uh, the first question is from a gentleman named Rob. He says, we have been experiencing a sinister attack on motherhood and fatherhood, as we know to be God's plan for the well-being of children and a school of love. Our Catholic families are having great battles to maintain a family and the virtues. Would you share how we can attain unity with our Catholic communities and support one another in staying together? Uh, in many ways, Rob, this is the, the essence of the church's pastoral care of the family as we live today. Um, and it's also the case that um, I believe it was Lucia of Fatima who said that the, in, the end, in the end, the final battle will be the attack on marriage and the family. So this is a very pertinent question that you're asking. And my hope is in what I've outlined, this understanding of a spirituality of, of faith, unity, and fruitfulness, that these are the foundations to address this question. Uh, 
but there are practical things too. In many ways, spouses need to do a kind of examination of conscience and to ask themselves, how much do we really place faith at the center of our marriage? How much do we place fidelity at the center of our marriage, this, this faithfulness that we have to one another? What are the practices that we do? Are we, are we looking at this thing more than at each other? Um, are our children hooked up to these things more than they are to each other? And so I think that families really need to do um, an honest examination of conscience uh, to assess whether they are truly living this, this unity of the domestic church. Uh, practically, I think the more you can engage in the real, the better. So real meals made from scratch, um, real relationships, reading stories together as a family, uh, praying together as a family. Um, I think there also needs to be some community support. And this is extremely important um, because in many ways, uh, sociology of religion has shown that for faith to take root and to grow and to be sustained, sustained you need communal support. And historically, we've had this. We had the support of grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, uh, my workplace, uh, my, my parish, etc. And so we ha had all this communal support for faith. But that's now going. And so often within the family, um, within the workplace, uh, there are all sorts of, there are different faiths. And so we're finding that without this lack of communal support, that faith is diminished. And so uh, philosophers talk about that we're almost on this, this liquidity, this, this sea of modernity in which we are sinking. And so I think as much as you can engage in genuine Christian communal support, the better. Uh, and, and then the last thing I want to point out is catechesis of the family. Catechesis of the family is almost non-existent, and yet it is so vital. When I teach the domestic church course, students are surprised that they've not heard so much of this. And these Catholic students that we have, they are some of the, the best educated Catholic people I've ever met. And yet they're not familiar with church teaching on marriage and the family. And we have to understand that a big part of this is because two-thirds of what the church has written on marriage and the family has only been written in the past 40 years. So in a sense, um, bishops, priests, the hierarchy, theologians, uh, the faithful have to now catch up with the magisterium in understanding the true teaching on marriage and the family and to share it. So that's one question. Uh, another question there is uh, Father Tom and in some sense, his questions have been answered by, uh, I would hope, by my lecture. Uh, Father Tom said, first of all, how can the Holy Family be a model for our family? And so, as I said, in these areas of fidelity, unity, and uh, fruitfulness, um, how do we live it? Again, we need to find concrete, practical ways of living fidelity, unity, and fruitfulness. He asked, what would a spirituality of the family involve? Um, Again, I go back to my lecture, but I do want to say this. In some sense, there is the temptation of the laity and especially married people to almost want to mimic uh, priests and nuns in our spirituality. And so many times we develop parallel spiritualities from our spouses and sometimes from our children. I, I hear some parents complain to me. They say, look, I, we have to go to separate masses because my little ones are distracting me. Uh, the consecration comes and goes, and I feel like I've not even been to Mass. 
So sometimes we'll go to separate masses. And I, and I say to them, no, that, that's not what a conjugal spirituality looks like. That's not what a parental spirituality looks like. A parental spirituality looks like you taking your little one and whispering in his or her ear, that is Jesus over there, and then communicating your faith to the little one. So we pray differently, not, not oppositely, because the vocation to priesthood and celibacy is a complementary vocation to marriage and family. But nevertheless, we do pray in a way that is different. And so I think each couple and each family has to discern within those, within those foundations of fidelity, unity, and, spiritual, and, and fruitfulness, how do we live this? He asks also a very good question here. Um, what can parishes do, he says, to celebrate the Holy Family, but also to support families. I will say this. Modern life is such that many families are isolated from grandparents, from aunts and uncles, um, from older family members who could really help with uh, support. And so there are a lot of families that really struggle and feel very, very burnt out by the challenges of modern life. And I would hope that parishes can find creative and unique ways of perhaps pairing up empty nester uh, grandparents with some of these young families and just give them some support. I really do think that it's vital that these young families that feel so isolated um, from their own families uh, get support within the family of the parish. I think that this is an integral part of the pastoral care of the family. Okay, so those were the questions that came in. Uh, we have a few more questions too. I'm going to start with um, a question is, is Jesus the son of David through Mary or Joseph? Okay, this is a very, very good question. Uh, so legally, it is through St. Joseph. Sons and children have their biological lineage traced through the father. So he is grafted into the Davidic line through St. Joseph. And as I said, remember, I said that Joseph is certainly not our Lord's biological father. There is no biological father, but he is his real father. He's his father by adoption. And therefore, Jesus has all the legal rights of a son in being Joseph's adoptive son. So legally, Jesus traces his lineage through St. Joseph, and thus he's the son of David. And even says that, actually, when the angel appears to Joseph and says, do not fear to take Mary to be your wife. He addresses him as son of David. And so this is vital for our Lord to truly be the Messiah, to truly be a descendant of the Davidic line. He must legally be Joseph's son. Now, that said, what about Mary? So we don't really know Mary's bloodline. It's believed that St. Luke's uh, the, the genealogy that St. Luke gives us is possibly Mary's bloodline, but it's not known, but it's, it's suspected that it is. And there's two things that's interesting about Mary's bloodline. First of all, there must be some sort of Levitical um, heritage because of the fact that she's related to Elizabeth, who's married to Zechariah. And so there's, some, there's, there's, there's priesthood, at least, in Mary's bloodline. But one could also speculate that it might also be, she might also be related to uh, King David because typically families married within their own bloodlines. So I would say that there is the very real possibility that Jesus, Jesus comes from a bloodline that is priestly and kingly. 
So not only is he legally related to David through Joseph, but he might also be related through Mary's bloodline, uh, in that case, biologically, with priesthood and with kingship. Okay, so the short answer to that is effectively it could well be both. Uh, next question. Uh, can you clarify how only consent is needed for a true marriage? Well, that's not exactly true. Okay, um, and so I need to give a little bit of canon law here. So the church teaches that a marriage is ratified by consent and then it is consummated. So the marriage needs to be ratified and consummated. And so once you've given your consent, then yes, you are legally married. You are married. That marriage has been ratified. But nevertheless, there must be the consummation for the marriage to become indissoluble. And so when the church begins to ask the question, did a true marriage take place? Was the marriage valid in, in the cases of declaration of nullities? They will look straight away at the consent. The consent is primary. Uh, did the couple consent to a relationship that is permanent, exclusive, and open to life? And then secondly, did the couple have the capacity to enter into a relationship that is permanent, exclusive, and open to life? And if they don't have that, then they're not married. So the marriage was not ratified, even if it was consummated. And so that's why it's not entirely true that it is only consent that makes a marriage. It is consent and consummation. But if you like, the, the primary uh, cause of marriage is ultimately the consent. Now, um, let me just say this. The, the Eastern Rite, that is not the case. The Eastern Rite does say that it is the blessing of the bishop or the priest that makes marriage. But nevertheless, spousal consent is presumed. Okay. And, and so if there was no spousal consent, then it would not be a valid marriage. Um, okay. Next question. Uh, in what sense can consecrated religious form a spiritual family? Uh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I want to say two things about this. Uh, first of all, remember I said that, that celibate people are also called, celibate people and married people have a vocation and a spirituality that is complementary to each other. Both the celibate and the married person live a spirituality that is ultimately a total gift of self made to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. That is what all of us do, and that is what all of us are going to do from all eternity in heaven. We live it in different ways. And so there is a real sense in which because celibate people are meant to live this total gift of self, then the celibate is meant to live that total gift of self in a way that's spousal, and so mirrors the gift of self that married people make. Because married people are meant to make the total gift of self towards each other, and they do so in a very, hopefully, radical way. In this sense, they, they mirror the radicality of celibacy. And so we see then that there is this, this mutuality and reciprocity between celibacy and marriage in which they all are called to make this total gift of self. So that's my first point. My second point is when the religious life is first developed in the Eastern Church and you have um, uh, some of these early saints, they actually choose the family as the model of the monastic life. Uh, in this way, then, the, uh, you, have, you have mothers 
you have um, spiritual fathers, you have brothers, you have sisters. They take this vow of stability in which they live within their, uh, within their convents, within their monasteries. And so in many ways, the, the spiritual life of the consecrated person is modeled on that of the family. Okay? But in a sense, exceeds it because it's, it's, it's not based upon blood, but it's based upon a unity in the Holy Spirit. And so I think this is always vital to remember, and I, I often say this to my students, that the men who would have made the best priests would have made the best husbands and fathers, and the men who have made the best husbands and fathers would have made the best priests, and so too of, of mothers and nuns. You, you would hope that nuns would have a, a profoundly deep uh, maternity, uh, spiritual maternity. And even in our understanding of celibacy, I once heard... Um, a wonderful bishop say that if a young man does not have an understanding of celibacy that is ultimately spousal, that this is this way that he will make his radical gift of self to the church, um, then he will not survive in this culture that we live in. The only way that a young man can embrace uh, the beautiful gift of celibacy is to understand this as his own gift of self to the church as bride. Okay, um, so I think it's it's vital that we have healthy marriages in order to have healthy priesthood and healthy religious life. In this case, in this way, then both vocations actually strengthen one another. Okay. Um, there is one other question that I have here about the fathers and the silence of St. Joseph in Scripture. Um, I'm not as familiar with as much as the fathers say about this question. Uh, and in some sense, the fathers don't say a lot about St. Joseph because Ultimately, a lot of the, the focus of the fathers is on our Lord, on his mother, and on redemption. Um, some people will notice that the silence of St. Joseph, in a sense, it is a silence, obviously a silence of words, but it's certainly not a silence of, of action. And, and St. Joseph, in his total uh, devotedness to the Blessed Mother and to our Lord, um, and also the fact that he protected the original church, the church of, of, of Mary and our Lord, um, he's speaking. He's speaking through his actions. This is why I said um, regarding St. Joseph and regarding his faith. So faith is ultimately an obedience. And Joseph's faith is a radical obedience in action and an obedience that becomes incarnated in action. Okay. Um, I am getting a question. Oh, where do you find the requirements to go to the temple? Uh, that, I believe, let me see if I've, I might have deleted my footnote on that question. Um, there were two authors that I looked at, um, and their name now escapes me. Um, there's... One So there is a Father Manelli, his book is called All Generations Shall Call Me Blessed. And then there was another, there's another book that I, that I used as, as reference for this. I wrote this, this part of the lecture about two years ago, so it escapes me. Um, but I imagine that through, possibly through principles and through our communication systems that I'm able to give, I'm getting a thumbs up right now, um, that I will be able to give these bibliographical references. Um, but I think it is a, a beautiful thing to see that um, 
faith is so much more than obeying the minimum law, but faith uh, seeks to fulfill that law with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay. All right. Are there any other questions? Nope. Okay. So I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to watch this lecture. I hope that it deepens your, your love of your spouse, your love of the Lord, your love of your children, that it strengthens you uh, in this wonderful work of evangelization that is tasked to each and every family. Uh, if you wish to view other classes from Principles, I would invite you to please go to getprinciples.com, getprinciples.com, and thank you again. <laughs>